0: Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, a uh, where it's still raining as we're recording this, so uh, I hope everyone's doing okay, not only here in the nation's capital, but certainly out east as well with all the flooding. I hope everyone's being safe uh, and doing well out there, uh, and we're, we're going to look back a bit at uh, an anniversary that we missed on the show from last month at the start of April. We'll talk about a new book coming out called Where They Once Stood, Newfoundland's Rocky Road Towards Confederation by Raymond Blake and Melvin Baker. And we are very happy to be joined from Regina, where they are having the opposite problem from us here in the nation's capital, where it's too dry. Uh, Raymond Blake, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Sean, and it's great to get a chance to talk to the book uh, with you and, and good to talk to you uh, because uh, you were a student here a number of years ago and have gone on to many wonderful things since then.
0: Well, thank you. Yes, it is. Uh, it is exciting to, to get a chance to, to talk whenever I get a chance to talk to anybody from the University of Virginia, and you in particular, if, if memory serves, uh, and this is, I guess, maybe how bad my memory is, uh, I'm pretty sure you were on my committee
1: I think I was. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I was. and If I, my memory is correct, it was an easy committee to be on. <laughs> well, thank you. The, the thing I remember the most,
0: uh, which maybe not the most, but one of the things I remember is uh, that uh, Stephen Kenny, who was my advisor, he said that when you hand in the, the – it was my MA thesis. When you hand in the thesis, bound it in some way so that people can read it easily. So I went to the, the bookstore on campus and got these sort of freestanding ring things uh, and hole-punched it and put the rings on it and handed it to each reader. Uh, I don't know why that sticks out in my mind, but it really does. as one of my lasting memories. It's one of the only things I bought at the U of R bookstore, too. <laughs> um so no, so yeah, I, I love uh, I loved my time in Regina, and always happy to uh, to reminisce. But uh, but let's talk about Newfoundland and this book because this is the seventieth anniversary of Newfoundland's joining Confederation, and this book is looking back at when that happened and and challenging a little bit about the the preconceived notions or the notions I guess that we have about how that happened. But first off, you're in Regina, and the book is about Newfoundland. So I think the first question most people would have as they listen to this is why would you look into the history of Newfoundland and its joining in confederation?
1: Well, you know, uh, my PhD dissertation and my very first book was on the integration of Newfoundland into Canada after 1949. So I looked at the period after, you know, I guess Newfoundland made the decision in July 1948 to accept the, uh, you know, the, the, the proposed terms of union after a very bitter fight between various factions in Newfoundland over Confederation, whether they would join or not join. So my first, my PhD dissertation and then my first book looked at the period from 1948 to 1957 to see how the process of integration went the decision was made how would canada take over a former colony country dominion call it what you want and integrate that as a canadian province so you know uh, I, i come by this subject somewhat honestly, and although I went off and did a number of other things, then came back a couple of years ago and looked at the period from 1957 uh, through to the the present, I guess, or the present at the time, but to about 2010, and looked at how Ottawa-Newfoundland relations work, and then went off and did a couple of other things. And now for this book, I work with Melvin Baker, an archivist at Memorial University, University and said well let's go back and look at the period that led up to 1948 so in a way this is a bit of a trilogy uh, not quite of the Harry Potter seven you know, seven <laughs> book series nor is interesting nor as lucrative but th- th- this book too goes back to the 100 1919 is the 150th anniversary of Newfoundland saying no to Confederation. Mm -hmm. So this book covers the period from about the 1860s through to 1949, and how Confederation was an issue in Canadian-Newfoundland relations and Newfoundland-Canadian history over a long period of time. And as you probably know, I'm from Newfoundland. Yes. I've always been sort of interested in some of the discussions around confederation uh, by bureaucrats, by historians, and quite often the, the, the arguments in confederation was, you know, Newfoundlanders, and there's been a couple of books written recently, a couple of books that argued, you know, Newfoundlanders were duped. Uh, Newfoundlanders didn't understand what they were doing. And in many ways, I suppose we were talking a little bit, uh, probably a lot, my great-grandfather and, you know, my grandmother and even my parents, who, you know, my mom was born in 1919, so she could have voted and or did vote in 1949. And the fact that the arguments were always made that Newfoundlanders didn't understand, Newfoundlanders were, I guess, you know, the stereotypical image of Newfoundlanders not being particularly savvy comes to politics. I guess you were talking about, you know, the people that, you know, well, I guess not the actual, uh, you know, many of my generation wouldn't have been born at that time, but certainly our parents and great-grandparents were, and to sort of see them in sort of a less than uh, a complimentary way, that they were duped, they were stupid, they didn't understand, I'm not sure the, that was actually true. So in a part of doing this book, it was to sort of, I, I won't say it was autobiographical, uh, but certainly a uh, we wanted to consider whether or not some of the notions about Confederation were in fact valid. So
0: so you start working on this with Melvin Baker. As you say, he's an archivist at Memorial. So what is then the divide? I mean, you are a political historian. He's, he's an archivist. How do we come about this? What is your process in terms of getting the material, getting at it, and, and trying to navigate these waters? I mean, R- Regina... St. John's are not exactly right beside each other, and uh, you know, and two, and two, I assume very different approaches as well, given your different uh, professions.
1: Yeah, you, you know, well, Melvin is a is a not only a, a, a wonderful archivist, but he's done quite a bit on Newfoundland history as well. Now he is working on a project on William Coker. He's done a large number of entries for the DCB. The Dictionary of Canadian Biography. He's written quite a bit for the Newfoundland ancestor. So he does a lot of, you know, I, I won't say sort of local history, but he's done a lot of history that focuses on Newfoundland as a country, as a dominion, as a colony. And and I come at it from a Canadian political history, even my earlier books on Newfoundland came at it from a Canadian perspective a Canadian history perspective so I, I and, and I really don't know a lot of the Newfoundland history other than the history that comes from my approach as a Canadian political historian so much of my research is in Ottawa uh, you know in the in the London archives uh, but certainly in in the National Archives in Ottawa, his comes at it more from a Newfoundland archives. So he knows the Newfoundland Archives extremely well. I know it, you know, much less well. And his work would not take him generally to the to the na- national archives and the and the government records and the personal records of prime ministers and, and and politicians in Ottawa. So in that sense it was a very good marriage because he knew the Newfoundland stuff. I knew the Canadian and the British stuff. And so when we try to do this book together, it it works well. But as you know, with any collaborative effort, there's a lot of, uh, you know, getting to know the different approaches. Although I knew his work, he knew my work. And we've been, I guess, you know, become friends over the years. And it was, you know, working with an archivist who also is an historian. um you know this. It worked well. And I, I should say as well. The book came together surprisingly quickly. I had talked to U of R Press about. I had a shirt grant to study social citizenship and confederation, and I, we. I talked to, to to Bruce Walsh, who at the time was a president or director of the U of R Press, and said, you know, I'm working on. And he said, well can we do an anniversary book this would have been about i suppose june july i of 2017 and i said jesus sounds like a wonderful idea and he said well we would need the book manuscript by by july or by january february at the latest of 2018 <laughs> that's 6 months yeah and i said you know you know I'm, we're pretty fast but i don't think we can manage that but anyhow, we did. We got the manuscript in, in about six months, and uh, we worked, you know, well together, Melvin and I. And, and you know, just commuting between St. John's and, and, and Regina is not easy. But we, we managed to put the manuscript together, and in the end, it turned out to be, you know, it turned out to be very, very, very good manuscript it went through the peer review process it went to Age of Scholarly Publication uh, the U of R had two readers of course uh, and it came back with no significant revisions the manuscript uh, was turned around very quickly by reviewers and, and, and it was given an excellent rating by uh, the Age of Scholarly Publication readers and um, so it, it worked well so we think we had A very readable man then we tried to do it as well because it was an anniversary book in some ways to make it a more accessible book than uh, probably your typical than your typical academic academic work
0: now you realize that people who have written books all across the country now maybe all across the world who, who listen to us are cursing you right now for talking about how quickly it all happened like you know people are going to be angry about how smooth and, and quick you're describing this process
1: well you know there were there were hiccups along the way and, and melville and i <laughs> we had some disagreements over a variety of things but i think in when you do a book like this someone has to have the final word and you can't continue to go back and forth on uh you know, on, on, on matters of interpretation or you know in the Newfoundland experience you know when exactly did it become a dominion uh was it in 1908 was it in 1919 was the statute of westminster but we agreed that one of us would have the final say on all these sorts of things and i think once you agree that that you know, one person has expertise in one area, another person has expertise in the other, and you're willing to sort of let go. And as academics, and as you know, Sean, from your own <laughs> experience in, in your own writing, um, you know, there comes a time when you've got to sort of, okay, that's the, in this case, I'll defer to Melvin. In the other cases, he would defer to me. And once you make that decision, you move on.
0: Yes, yeah, you do have to. I remember during my undergrad, I had a professor uh, when I was at the the University of the West Indies. He he had his new book. We were in his office, and the box of books had just showed up. And he pulled one out, and he said, whenever, like a year ago, they asked me to cut a chapter. And I was so mad when they asked me to cut a chapter. And now I look in this book, I have no idea where it would have been. Like, I don't remember it at all. So, yeah, like, yeah. You just, yeah, you defer. It's It's a give and take, and... Ultimately, like you say, that if the end product is good, that's all that really matters. That's right. Yeah. So, so let's get into this a little bit. One, I, I, so, I was in Saint John's for the first time in February, and I've always been fascinated by Newfoundland politics and sort of Newfoundland identity and, and the culture of the island a little bit. And one of the things that comes up a lot in sort of the iconography of, of Newfoundland as it relates to the rest of the country, is Joey Smallwood and the idea of Joey Smallwood as the last father of Confederation uh, and, and pushing for for the for Newfoundland again, what you say, colony, dominion, however you want to refer to it, before 49 as as this father of Confederation. But I, I want to start just a little earlier because one of the things that this book gets into is why Newfoundlanders rejected Confederation, as you said, in the eighteen sixties and perhaps arguing why they were correct to do so in the 1860s. Uh, so, so that is so because because that then takes us on this journey to 1949 and, and the shift that takes place. So, what is the hesitation early on? Because certainly, I, I think a lot of people have this idea that in 19 or 1867. The, the the Atlantic provinces were sort of being browbeaten to try and join confederation so, so what's the case in Newfoundland in the 1860s to not join
1: well you, you know it, it, it's you read much of the historiography of that period and you know even you know uh, Daniel Prowse who, who wrote probably the first real history of Newfoundland in the 1890s and he was a confederate I should point out and he said you know if you look at why newfoundland should join canada there were very good reasons it would sort of aid economic development it would lead to you know greater investment from canada it would lead to an 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 improvement in the political discourse because you know the the island is so small and the population is so limited that you know the political world is so uh, incestuous, and and he didn't say this, but what he meant was, you know, the smaller the pit, the fiercer the rats, and 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 they don't <laughs> like each other very much, and and so he said there's all all sorts of good reasons for confederation, but he said when you look at why it didn't happen. He called them the simple out harbor people or what we call rural or outport Newfoundland, that they didn't quite understand the issues. That was in the 1890s. And if you follow the historiography from then until very recently, you would see that that argument continues to have a lot of influence. You know, you look at W.L. Morton, who wrote the critical years, that book in the Canadian Centenary series. If you look at books that were written around the 1940s by, you know, academic historians, and even into the 1970s and 80s, the argument is made that you were asking people who have very little education in terms of formal education. People were, for the most part, isolated. Uh, people who have very little connections with the colonial capital in St. John's. And if you look at them, that they were they said no to Confederation in 1869 when the British government, the governor, many of the leading merchants, the legal community all said let's join Canada. And and, and the only explanation that you could understand uh, for why it didn't happen, according to the historiography, was that they were victimized by propagandists. And, you know, the, the leading opponent of Confederation uh, was Charles Fox Bennett. And he's been presented as a great orator, a great propagandists who could sort of peddle lies and mistruths and you know convince an unsuspecting illiterate population that Confederation was awful. And so the governor at the time wrote to the British Colonial Office and said, you know, there's no there's no sort of way to explain what happened except people were gullible. Mm. But if you take issues that people were confronted with one taxation you know one of the governors a few years earlier had said you know most colonies around the british empire were saying no representation no taxation without representation and the governor wrote bannerman governor bannerman uh, wrote and said you know, in Newfoundland, is the reverse. What they want is representation without taxation. So there was a <laughs> great, and he argued to the British, or pointed out to the British government that there's a great fear of taxation in Newfoundland, not in terms of income tax, but customs taxes, uh, tariffs, excise taxes, and these. Thing, municipal taxes, completely opposed. So there was a real sense in Newfoundland, and, and this is now being sort of, you know, the big argument about Confederation, you know, the Canadian Confederation, was there were some real arguments about was it Tory, was it Liberal, and and the idea of banks and taxation and big governments. People were worried about this in Nova Scotia, for example, and in, in Upper and Lower Canada as well. And, and so, What Charles Fox Bennett did is he went around Newfoundland and campaigned quite vigorously and said what you are doing and what you're being asked to do in 1869 joining Canada was to surrender your democratically elected government in Newfoundland. Responsible government came in 1855 and you're asked to give this up and transfer power to a faraway distant place in Ottawa rather than St. John's, and what are they going to do for you? Hmm. It's a distant government. Most people couldn't even fathom where Ottawa was. And so they're asked to surrender their colonial legislature for one up somewhere or another in mainland Canada And trust them to do what's right. And they said, well, you know, this is a pretty, we're taking quite a leap of faith. The other thing that Charles Fox Bennett did, in addition to taxation, was to talk about why do the Canadians want confederation? And he said "Is to protect themselves from the Americans. The invasion of the United States. And he said, you know what this might mean? Military service, conscription. Mm-hmm. And, and in Newfoundland, you know, we're not far away in 1860 from the Napoleonic Wars, the War of 1812. And and they were quite familiar with British impressment into the Royal Navy. And as late as 1917, we found the records of the governor going around uh, in 1917, To charge, you know, just sort of try to recruit for the for the First World War, and to keep an eye on the outlying areas to make sure that German submarines weren't taking shelter in uh, in some of the inlets and bays. And when the governor arrived in Newfoundland in some of those outport communities, in his words, there were only women folk. Where are the men? Mm. And this is 19. 17 and talking to them, he discovered that the women folk, in his word, had sent the men to hide in the forest because the governor was coming on a military, a naval ship. And when they saw the ship coming in, they figured, oh, this is the British coming again to impress the soldiers or the men into the navy. So that's 1917. If you go back to 18, 18- Sixty-nine. this idea of British impressment is real. And so when Bennett, the anti-Confederate, begins to talk about confederation and the men married and unmarried will be pressed into the British, into the Canadian military and their bones will be bleached on the desert sands of the Canadian West to protect the the new country from the Americans, and they had no quarrel with the Americans. So the uh, issue of conscription and taxation, the two most onerous responsibilities of citizenship, played well. And what we argue is that even though those people in outport Newfoundland were uneducated, uh, you know, in in a formal sense, had, had a world view, and they were extremely worried about what this new political arrangement would mean in terms of a distant government managing their affairs and so they weren't stupid they were cons- at a world view and in their world view this confederation arrangement was not going to lead to anything that was beneficial so rather than being being sort of victimized by a by a you know, a demagogue, a propagandist, what they had was a narrative, a narrative that worried them, increased taxation, military service, loss of nation, the loss of responsible government, the loss of Newfoundland as as a separate entity. They had control of their own affairs. And so the, the narrative that was put to them in 1869 was one that many were worried about. And so we think they made an informed decision and one that's fitted into their own sort of view of the world and fitted into their own circumstances.
0: And that's I think that's fair and and legitimate, certainly. But how much does the fact that this is an island play into what that worldview is? Because, I mean, you mentioned there's no quarrel with the Americans. There's fear of British with impressment. Uh, you know I, I i can't imagine it's even close to the same thing but the other island doesn't join in 1867 either like how much is there an island culture and an isolation that goes along with being on an island like that physical isolation that makes these communities perhaps a little more wary or a little more conservative of joining into confederation than perhaps we see elsewhere
1: i i think it it, it no whether or not it's an island, I'm not sure, matters a lot. But the fact that they were self-contained as a as a colony, because right. some of the things that were played out in Newfoundland were also some of the things that Phil Buckner talks about throughout the Maritimes in Nova Scotia and in New Brunswick and certainly in PEI. Uh, the fear of a distant government. What is this new government going to do for us? The loss of independence. The, the loss of the entity that exists, and and the other thing that's related to that is that voting and campaigns in Newfoundland in the mid 18th century was almost ritualistic. That it was a way of demonstrating that Newfoundland as a community existed. And for example, when a when a politician came to those outlying areas. And of course what we had before in eighteen eighty five in Newfoundland was sort of, you know, the public voting. The secret ballot only came in the eighteen eighties. But when politicians came, the community would erect arches, you know, made of you know green boughs and and and, and, and other adornments to welcome those people to the community. There would be there would be uh, parades with torches. There'd be you know the firing of guns to welcome the politicians when they came to town, regardless of what political party they they were. So we claim that in the book that the act of voting and the old political campaign was a were, were instruments of nation building and. And in this process, this election of 1869, just voting themselves, just the act of voting and campaigns was a manifestation of a national entity that was separate and distinct, that gave people almost made them appear to be, I guess not made them appear to be, but was a sign of British citizenship. And so why would you give that up? And joined with a country like Canada, which because of your island and your fishing industry, your connections were to New England, uh, were to the, to the West Indies, were, were to Portugal and Spain and England itself. And so building a transcontinental railway or, or an intercolonial railway from, you know, from Quebec down to Halifax had no great appeal because your world was somewhere else.
0: Which makes sense, certainly, and it speaks to the larger issue of sort of the two big North American countries and how they're formulated and the borders being where they are, and maybe they don't make all that much sense. But it also makes me wonder about the idea of if there is this this idea of of what a Newfoundlander is and this, this internal culture to the island, people have to buy into that, certainly – and how much is it narrative and is there situations where people buy into a narrative and maybe not just specific to Newfoundland, but let's talk about what happened, that, that they're buying into a narrative that is being given to them as part of a campaign that may be in or maybe against their best interest. Is it not possible that someone who is campaigning could convince people of something that ultimately could hurt them?
1: I think you're absolutely right, and and you know voters can do irrational things, uh, and sometimes for what they think are very good reasons, but in in hindsight, may not be. One of the things that Charles Fox Bennett did in the anti-Confederate a campaign, was to create this narrative of who they were but he also created a narrative that we can manage our own affairs. Right, and Charles Fox Bennett was unlike many merchants in Newfoundland in that he had invested, although we lived for part of the year in, in, in England, uh, but he had invested in breweries, distilleries, he had uh, developed a mine he was very keen on sort of developing the interior and a model which was not unlike the Canadian national policy. And he continued to to not only say, you know, patriotism, but he began to express notions of development along the similar model that Canada and the United States were doing. And he, he convinced people, we can do it on our own. We don't need to team up with of course, uh, you know, Quebec was a factor. And, you know, Quebec and, uh, you know, many of the wars that have been fought in Newfoundland throughout its history were the British and the French. Mm-hmm. And and it was not uncommon for, you know, parts of Newfoundland to be pillaged by uh, the French and their indigenous allies. and And so that was an issue as well. And, and, and people, of course, you know, had no great affinity for, for France. France still occupied parts of the Newfoundland uh, coastline, and they would continue to do so until 1901, 1902, uh, the French shore that were given in the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713. So this too was presented as a problem that had to be rectified. And, and, you know, do we want more and closer relations with, with the French in Quebec? And of course, the other big issue is the Catholic, the, the Catholic Church, and there was a great fear about denominational education being threatened in the new sort of you know British Union that would emerge from Confederation in the 1860s. So, so that, that played in as well. So it, it's complicated, um, uh, but all of these things were people were reminded of them in the narrative. That was created in that moment, and I think a little bit later on, people begin to realize that, oh, geez, you know, this this narrative that was created is not working out the way that we had thought that it would.
0: Right. So so let's jump a uh, let's jump ahead then to uh, sort of the, how things change. I think that the narrative that I've always been presented with Newfoundland and. and this is how it gets presented, in part, at Beaumont Hamel, uh, over in France. So, you know, this isn't just the way it's been presented to me elsewhere, but certainly, I guess, the official Veterans Affairs version is that the First World War happens, uh, Beaumont Hamel happens, uh, amongst other things, and the Newfoundland, the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, gets uh, they they lose a lot of men, and there's a lost generation in Newfoundland of men, and the war financially hits Newfoundland harder then other people, the, the debt is not able to be serviced. 1930s come around, the, the government falls, there's the commission that comes in, and then after the Second World War, it's basically put to the people that, we're, we, the British, we're not doing this anymore, you're joining Confederation. And that's sort of a, a very general overview of how it's always been presented to me. Uh, so so the, the vote, I know it's contentious, but it's almost seen as like, to, to a certain degree, the, like what is the other choice? So, so when we get to 1949, certainly correct anything that I've I've misstated. But when we get to 1949, how is there this back and forth, strong debate? When again, the the traditional narrative that gets presented in, in certain places is there's almost a uh, there's almost no choice left.
1: Hey, you know, I I think part of so what you say is is probably confirmed with what we do in the book okay uh, but what we're beginning to see emerging by the probably by the turn of the of the century the beginning of the 20th century there's a growing divide between and and, and people like Kirk Koronesky would argue this happened earlier and I think he's right on that. Uh, that you're beginning to see by the latter part of the 19th century, certainly by the part of by the beginnings of the 20th century, there's a growing divide between between rural Newfoundland and outport Newfoundland. There's really two there, there's really two different I guess cultures, economies, and, and certainly ways of thinking emerging in Newfoundland. And one of the things, this is sort of to illustrate quickly, that one of the things that the governing elites, most of which, uh, you know, come from St. John's, uh, people will, a merchant or a lawyer will go to the outlying areas and be a proxy almost for the Water Street merchants, the elite. Elites and will be elected. It doesn't matter whether it's conservative or, or or liberal or some other party. The names are very fluid of the political parties. And 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 then the the government will say, look, we want to have a we want a, we want a, a free trade agreement with the Americans, and they come very close to working this out. And then when it doesn't work out they'll say, okay, what we're going to do is to make sure that American fishermen who are coming to to Newfoundland and also, you know, Prince Edward Island and Labrador, and we're going to sort of, you know, put in place measures so that we can't trade, uh, you know, fish with them or we can't trade bait and and, and a variety of other things. And so the, the, the state, the official government bureaucracy puts punitive measures in place. And then they find... They can't enforce them because the local population outside of St. John's on the West Coast and on the South Coast are saying, well, you know, basically to, to hell with you. This is our livelihood. And what do you mean we can't trade with, with the Americans if they want to buy fish or if they want to buy bait or if they want whatever? And, and so the, the, the state centered in St. John's tries to extend its influence over the outlying areas, and the outlying areas are fighting St. John's and saying, you can't do that. It's in our economic interest not to do what the state wants. So you're beginning to see a divide uh, between the the St. John's and the rest of the island, and you're beginning to see this particularly after 1908, with the emergence of William Coker and the fishermen's protective union and and he organizes fishermen along the coast and and he begins to say things like oh why is it that there are five no you know probably six of uh, five religious schools in St. Johns to train the and educate the the people in St. John's, particularly those who are well to do, and there are none on the out, in the outlying areas where the fishermen live. Why is it that there are hospitals in St. John's and none in the outlying areas? And and so there's emerges in the political realm a and of course the fishermen's protective union end up as a political party, it's a progressive movement in many ways. And, and he says, why? And he has overwhelming support in the outlying areas. And it is not a, a sort of a, um, you know, it's not a class based thing in, 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 some ways it might be, but he's saying, like, why do they have things like education, hospitals, roads, transportation? And we don't. And so we see the emergence of a growing gulf between the, the urban and rural areas. Even we see this in the war. You know, the Beaumont Amel and the Newfoundland Regiment is primarily initially a St. John's-run war effort. Most of the people come from that area, and only later do they come in from the rural areas. So, it's a, it's, so the, the first troops to went overseas, it was an urban military campaign, and it was run by the local merchants and the legal community and the governor. And and so you see this being played out. The role of BOMA, or I should say the war, uh, in creating problems, financial problems, it's true. The railway was another major, you know, money pit uh, that, that created all sorts of problems. And the fishery was failing, you know, on a regular basis after the 1880s, even the 1860s. And, and so the economy... This, based on sort of the national policy of Canada, didn't pay the dividends that people had hoped in the 1860s. And, of course, the Great Depression happens, and that brings everything to a, a, a crashing halt. And there are very serious problems that have to be dealt with.
0: And, and so we come out in after the war, and, and we're in this situation where, you know, the so how does it get presented? Actually, I do not presume anything. How does it get presented to people when we get into the second half of the 1940s? Is it presented by the the British saying you can now vote on this? Uh, it's up to you. Is it? I know there's campaigns on either side. Obviously, we'll talk about Joey Smallwood. But but what is the the process through which a vote is initiated to determine what is going to happen with Newfoundland?
1: Well, you know uh, when Newfoundland. Surrendered responsible government in nineteen thirty-three to take it back in nineteen thirty-four, and it was governed by a commission of government until nineteen until confederation. The British had said, "Once you have become self-sufficient, then we will return responsible government." I, one of the things that we try to make the case in the book that two or three British politicians play a much greater role than they're given credit for. You know, there's been some recent work, very popular uh, uh, books in Newfoundland, sold probably many more copies than ours will sell. (laughs) Uh, One is Greg Malone, for example, Uh, Don't Tell the Newfoundlanders. It's a very popular book, uh, promoted, you know, by Greg Malone, of course, the the comedian and social activist, uh, you know, promoted th- this book. Is was you know promoted by the CBC and and other cultural institutions uh, uh, quite quite aggressively. And and what he has argued is that the British and the Canadians conspired to you know sit the terms, probably even fudge the results and force Newfoundland into confederation. Well, what we show is that. After the war, several politicians in Great Britain are critical. One is Clement Attlee. Clement Attlee is, you know, the leader of the Labour Party in the UK, becomes the uh, Dominion Affairs Minister in Churchill's government uh, in the early 1940s. He visits Newfoundland in 1942 and he becomes prime minister in 1945. And one of the things that Clement Attlee, he's a socialist, uh, you know, very much involved in the Fabian movement, when he comes to Newfoundland, he is struck by not the push for the return of responsible government, but he is extremely worried that the... And he says this in a speech to, to, to Newfoundlanders when he's there in 1942. He said, you know, the war is now turning in the Allies' favor. And it's very important that Newfoundland, uh, he thanked them for their contribution to the war effort, but he said, Newfoundland has to win the peace. Mm-hmm. And what he meant by that was that there's no going back to the 1930s. And coming out of the war we gotta make sure that there is a there Newfoundland is equipped to deal with whatever problems that that it might encounter. There were a number of people in Newfoundland by the nineteen 45, And of course Newfoundland had done extremely well during the war. It had, you know, was running budget deficits for years. With the American spending, Canadian spending, to a lesser extent, British spending in Newfoundland, it's turning a surplus. So Newfoundland has you know, almost $30 million in the bank, and it even loans money to Great Britain. But what Attlee says is that the wartime conditions in Newfoundland, unlike in Canada, where there were all sorts of industries that were producing things for the war, could be converted into domestic production. None of that happened in Newfoundland. Newfoundland got a surplus in, simply because of spending on the military basis. Once the war is over, that's going to dry up. That's not going to happen. That's not going to continue. And so he tells Newfoundlanders that they have to be aware of the fact that wartime conditions didn't make Newfoundland's economy any stronger. And that going forward, they have to be very careful about how they do things, and he was concerned that Newfoundland could no more stand on its own going forward after the war than it could that led up to the 1920s and 30s and the surrender of responsible responsible government. So what he is saying is that, you know, be careful going forward, And, and he didn't think they could manage as a separate, independent nation. At the same time, He realizes that it can no longer be governed by commission. This was a war for freedoms and democracy and and so on. So he realizes that responsible government has to be returned. And he proposes, as do a number of others, that there be a constituent assembly, a national assembly to consider the way forward. But what he does, and, and this is critical, I think, he said we can't. Can't put the same people back in charge after you know we, we go forward that were in charge prior to. In other words, he is worried about the merchants, the elites, and he wants to have a place for what he calls ordinary citizens. So when he created the national convention, he put in the residency requirement. That it can't be as it was in the past, that the merchants and the elites and their uh, and and their representatives will will control this show. He wanted, as he wanted for Great Britain, a greater democracy, a greater respect for the ordinary citizen. Now he didn't get many fishermen running in the national convention. There were, uh, you know, uh, um, the, the the number. It it escapes me right now, but something like uh, 40, 45, I believe it was 45 representatives that they would that they would come together. But it was people from not just St. John's, but cooperative workers, teachers, ministers, social workers, others from throughout the province would come together in this constituent assembly, this national assembly and make a recommendation I think if Attlee had not done that, there might have been a different outcome in 1949. So Attlee's role and Lord Cranbrook uh, and and others who were involved – I think we need to know more about those people, but we try to make the case in the book. We need more research, but they played a critical role in the outcome, not because they forced Newfoundland into Canada, but because it brought other people into the political dialogue, which would have been ignored otherwise. And one of those people that were brought in, of course, was Joseph R. Smallwood. Yes,
0: yeah, so, so Joey Smallwood sort of picks up that, mode of it, but but why then, because I mean, everything you said there sounds very good for the people of of Newfoundland, so what is the argument against uh, joining, and why is it then believed by some, and how does this narrative exist, that the people who vote for it are duped into it, because the, the case that you just made the, that is being made on the side of the British and later by Joey Smallwood seems rational and, and reasonable, given what had happened over the previous eighty years?
1: Yes. Well, I think there are there, there are two or three things that are critical here. Uh, one, the the leaders of the responsible government league that wanted to return to responsible government and were opposed to confederation. They they were conservative. This is and what we our our. Our basic argument on this moment of confederation is that what becomes important in the, you know, we see this being played out in the uh, Fishman's Protective Union, uh, we see it being played out in the Progressive Movement, we see it being played out in the Great Depression, and certainly during the war, is there's a realization that social policy and economic policy are really two sides of the same coin and what we argue in the book is that social citizenship emerges as the major dynamic it is the dynamism of the period whether you look at the uk to the beverage report you look in canada through the marsh report whether you look in the United States and the situation there would have been different, I suspect if Roosevelt had lived. Um, but you look at Australia, you look at New Zealand, that there's a notion that the state has a responsibility to care for its citizens in the normal course of living and not just in moments of dire crisis. And, and this is the this is the new dialogue. And if you read all of the convention reports, were, or all the convention debates and reports in the national convention, was sat for about two years and a bit, um, they're already recorded. They've, they've been now available um, in book or electronic form. And if you read those debates, those that wanted confederation are talking about the role of the state, that the state has to provide, you know, uh, protection against ill health, assistance with children, dealing with elderly, dealing with education, providing social services to end isolation. Things like electricity, electrification, these, these sorts of things are, is what is talked about in the, in, in the National Convention by Newfoundlanders. They talk about the curse of isolation. Um, you know, there's no roads. They talk about no medical facilities. They talk about the lack of education and schooling. Literacy rates are awful. There's no insurance for fishermen, and and there's no protection against ill health. And and so what we have argued is that in the debates, there's this sense that Newfoundland, like Canada, like New Zealand, like Australia, are beginning to want the state to provide certain basic protections. And those that come to the National Convention, only one of them come as a confederate, and that's Joseph Smallwood. The others come with these from the cooperative movement. uh, They come, some of them are teachers, uh, there's a welfare worker, a couple of them are ministers. United Church ministers, and they come with this vision that the state is no longer remote, but the state has to be engaged with the citizens. We call this social citizenship. Um, you know, uh, borrowing from some of the, the the literature that exists on this, and and we say that this is the critical issue that Newfoundlanders are debating, and and the and the national convention is broadcast, it's taped, and broadcast over the Newfoundland Broadcasting Corporation when they're in session. And so every night, people gather around their radio, and they're being told, we believe that Newfoundland going forward, as to embrace." the state and to see what the state can do for you, as is happening in Britain, as is happening in Canada, with unemployment insurance in Canada, family allowances. And those who are opposed to confederation, they say, no, if we have children, we'll take care of them ourselves. We don't want the federation, or we don't want the state to do this. If we have to deal with unemployment, no, a good job is to be protection against unemployment not some sort of insurance program that workers pay into and and so they not only uh, oppose, that's why I said they were conservative, that not only do they oppose social programs but they denigrate them, they Mm -hmm. call them one of the leaders of the responsible government league talks about the family allowances as the most inequitous bill that ever passed a Canadian parliament it is just sheer evil to think that we are going to give money to parents to raise help raise their children so so what we try to argue is that social citizenship becomes the issue and the confederates make the case that this has to be the new dynamism in in Newfoundland this has to be the new way of of, of governing, this has to be new relationship between the state and citizen, and, and we argue that this is a pivotal moment in, in confederation debate. Whereas baby bonuses or family allowances were seen as bribes, and we talked about narrative in 1869. The narrative in 18 in 1948-49 is social citizenship, a new relationship between state and citizen. That provides protections for 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 citizens. That provides education. That provides transportation. That provides transfers to citizens. And and we, we and that then becomes the critical question in the confederation debates.
0: And, and that seems that it makes sense that that would be divided along rural urban. Lines because in urban settings or a place like St. John's, it's weird. I I call St. John's an urban setting, but having been there, I don't know if, like, when when I think of urban, maybe it's because I grew up near Toronto, I think of that. And obviously, St. John's and Toronto are very different places for a lot of different reasons. But a lot of the things you're talking about exist already. And in those outlying areas, they don't. So is it as simple as to say that the people in the outlying areas? are saying all these services or these things that we want in terms of transportation, schools, we don't have them. The people in the cities are saying, well, why would why do we need to do this? These things exist already.
1: Well, you know, I, I think the conception of state differs in St. John's than it does in outlying areas. As you say, the hospitals are there, the, you know the sanatorium for tuberculosis. If anyone wants to sort of do In a post secondary, before 1949, there was a two year college. It was in Saint John's, Um, so people had to go there, and 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 so they had a different. Their state was their state was more, I guess, apparent to them, and they could look at instruments of the state and see evidence of it in uh, in Saint John's, whereas they could not. Many people in the outport areas didn't see that at all and and I think that if you look at the you know the conception of what the state has provided there, there's evidence of that in you know in St John's whereas that would that would not be that would not be the the case uh, that would not be the case in the outlying areas the other item that I think you know you, When we talk about social citizenship, it it has been sort of a major driver. But, you know, the other thing is there were concerns as well uh, amongst uh, the Catholic population about losing denominational schools. There were concerns about, you know, uh, divorce. Uh, And St. John's was, you know, at least parts of St. John's were, you know, 50% Catholic. Uh, the the priests were the bishop was opposed to confederation, and you we can't minimize that. We don't think it was the critical factor, but it was a factor, and and we acknowledge that. And you know, in even in Saint John's, a third of the population voted for confederation.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's not a complete sort of urban versus rural uh, a, a setup there. And, and then the, – the, so out of that, though, why is it that there emerges another narrative of these people were duped? And the thing that immediately came to my mind was the pride that so many people have had, have, in being Newfoundlanders. I mean, when I was out there, I met a few people who – were born in the mid 1940s. And they talked about how proud they were to have been born Newfoundlanders and not be born Canadians. And the, the, the thing that comes up a lot is that on uh, the day when Newfoundland joined Confederation, it wasn't necessarily a celebratory day that there was a lot of sadness and people felt that they had lost a certain element of their uh, of their culture and their identity. So does that feed in then retrospectively into how we look at the vote and we look at people, even people who maybe voted to join Confederation, you can vote for Confederation and still be sad to no longer be this independent entity. But do we take that sentiment and then put it back on the voters and say, you know, we're sad to have lost this. They must have been dumb to to have voted for it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think you're right, Sean. Uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, we, we start the book um, by saying, you know, it, it's, it's it's a it's an unusual event in history you know in, in the and we said like Newfoundlanders went against uh, the trend both in the 1860s the age of nation building when nations were being formed all over the all over the globe and Newfoundlanders said we don't want to be a part of it um, and in the post war period when there's the emergence of you know Know, a number of new nations. Uh, and, and, and Newfoundland, again, goes against the trend and joins to be, and opts to become a province of Canada. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, if they had remained independent, you know, they could have been certainly a member of the Commonwealth, could have joined the UN, you know, could have been a member of the International Monetary Fund, the list goes on and on. So when you look back on this period, and, and you say, uh, particularly if you look at that period of the, the early two thousands in Newfoundland, you know, when the price of oil <laughs> went to one hundred and fifty bucks a barrel, and, yes. and, and 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 Newfoundlanders were saying, you know, the the sun is finally, you know, shining on on, on Newfoundland, and people said, well, what the, what the heck did we do, you know, why did we do that, and 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 and, and you know, if you you know you mentioned Bomanamo earlier. And if you talk to a large number of people in and around Newfoundland, uh, you know, they're shaking their head about the amount of time and energy that's gone into commemorating, you know, the Newfoundland regiment or in Beaumont Hamill. Right. Uh, you know, you, you, you know, you chose your words carefully a little while ago when, you know, in fact, it was a colossal disaster. You know, there's no other way of, of putting it. Yeah you know, uh, you know uh, uh, two thirds of the regiment wiped out in the first day without really getting a shot off mm-hmm. uh, and yet if you go and you look at you know the, the fairy names in Newfoundland now the celebrations around and not to sort of minimize the loss of a single life that was valuable but you know nobody is standing up and saying in that particular case we were duped you know to send those yes. young men uh, to their death in, in, a, in a campaign that was utterly useless. And, but yet the celebratory attitude and, and, and the excitement around the regiment is, is sort of a number of people shaking their head. And, and, but yet it's been sort of been celebrated and commemorated as a great moment of Newfoundland history when the loss was enormous mm-hmm. and and we don't hear about this you know you know so when you look at 1949 and and you sort of say uh, you know how do you explain it how do you explain give, giving up your birthright and you do it by saying people didn't know people didn't understand right. people were people were taken advantage of it was those goddamn British, and Canadians who, who, who made us give up our beloved nation. And and, and so it's, it, it's a way, of course, of, of trying to rationalize. But, you know, Joseph Smallwood uh, gave a, 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 a wonderful speech to open the National Convention when he talked about, we are not a nation. You know, uh, we are, at best, a small suburb in a large metropolitan city and to think that we can sort of, you know, survive as a small independent nation and give our citizens the standard of living that they deserve, the North American grade that he talked about, the North American equivalent, it's impossible. The state has been a failure. You know, we had hope after 1869 that we could sort of you know, build a vibrant nation to rival Canada and the United States, certainly not in terms of size, but in terms of the type of of, of the type of well being that citizens can expect in a nation state, that we failed miserably. And and so he, he saw the future not as independence, the past not as a place to return, but a place from which to escape that is a very that's taking you know that's more than scraping you know the scab and the wound this is in, yes. this is inserting the knife and twisting it every which way you can imagine and and so people are now trying to make sense of what happened and we believe one way to do that is to blame somebody else mm-hmm. you know it's to blame somebody and this is you know this is the 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 the, the, the new and Jerry Bannister talks about this in much more eloquently than I can but but you know this is a way that, that in, in, in Newfoundland nationalism throughout the 19th and early part of the 20th century, probably most of the 20th century was to say Newfoundland faced great obstacles and we tried to overcome them where possible. Today Newfoundland nationalism, is more of, we're a victim. Someone else is to blame for us. And when you look at Confederation, the people who lived at the time, it's extraordinary. You know, when we talk of uh, probably the most famous or infamous referendum, and referendums are blunt instruments with which to gauge public opinion, that if you look at Brexit, You know, 50-odd percent, 52% voting to leave, 48% stay. You know, that is still a mess. In Newfoundland, 1948, 52% voted to become a part of Canada, 48% to remain independent. Within months, the 48% had come around to the other side. Hmm. Sure. Or there would be individuals who would say, you know, April 1, what an awful thing happened last year or two years ago or 10 years or 20 or 50 years ago. But as a group of people, Newfoundlanders accept the Confederation instantly. And right. many of those that have been opposed went to the other side very, very quickly. So there's been no active campaign in this, you know, 70 odd years. To, to reverse the decision. Right. And
0: so, so you mentioned Brexit in there too, and, and it brings up a, a, an interesting point because in both the examples, 1869 and 1949, we have cases where people are accusing those in the outport areas of being duped and not being very smart and not really understanding sort of this worldview. And that relates certainly to what happens today in contemporary politics uh, people who voted for Brexit, uh, people who voted for Donald Trump, people who voted for Jason Kenney, often are accused by people in large urban centers who largely are on the left, who to, to say that oh you don't really understand this, you're not smart enough, how like how can you do this, and like you're ignoring all of these different things, and the pushback that. You know, when you listen to voters who voted for Brexit, who voted for Donald Trump, voted for Jason Kenney and so on and so forth, they're saying, no, we understand what's going on. This serves us better than the alternative. So it's interesting to me that this, these sorts of debates and where the accusations are coming from tend to be the same in that it's sort of these people on the left who are intellectuals and frankly think they know better than everybody else, who, who accuse these rural individuals of not truly understanding, of being backwoods and not having this worldly approach that us in the cities have. And it, it strikes me that there's a remarkable parallel between the, the vote in 1869, the vote in 1949, and, and the issues that we deal with today in this, re, in this remarkable divide between urban and rural voters.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that we we hope that that people who pick up this book will see this not just as a a, a story of Newfoundland and Canada, but they will see this as as the, the question of voter confident competence. And one of the things that I mean, one of the best lines we have in the book, I think, is you know, quite often people will say, as you've just said. If only people were as wise as I am or as we are, yeah. they yeah. would have had a result. And, and what we try to counter is that every voter, when they go into the ballot box or in 1869 when they cast their their, their ballot or their vote, um, they have a worldview. They have fears and hopes anxieties and aspirations, and they've listened to narratives that's put to them by politicians. Those narratives are based on truth and mistruth, on information and misinformation. They're based on stories which people construct. But what we try to say in the book, and I think another good line that we have in there, and I don't know if I'll get it right or not, but politics and its essence is about persuasion. and mm-hmm. and And politicians, it's competitive. And they attempt to persuade voters of a particular narrative, of a particular outcome, and to say... Then, once they voted, that only if they were smart as you, they would have made the right decision. And, and that is a certain amount of arrogance, yeah. which I, I don't think is enlightening. And one of the things that we talk about here is that conspiracy theories, in the case of Newfoundland recently, have had considerable appeal and conspiracy theories make for interesting reading but they make for poor history and 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 so we think that this book is dealing with issues much beyond those that we talk about in the newfoundland experience or the canadian newfoundland experience and and the issue of the Voter competence to make informed decisions, because these are the people, I sort of said, you know, these are, you know, I guess for Melvin and I, this is a bit autobiographical. You know, both of our generations or or our, our previous, our ancestors, in the case of myself, you know, my father couldn't read or write. You know, he, I, I watched him put an X a number of times when he went to the post office or whatever. But yet, you know, he could sail, you know, the Grand Banks. He was a fisherman, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he and many other people like him uh, never had the opportunity to go to school. But they know the value of education. You know, the fact that I'm much more educated than he was says something mm-hmm. uh, that they push that. But these are people who could sail to the Grand Banks, they could sail the Porto with a load of fish, go from there down to the West Indies, back to London, back to Newfoundland, build their own house, build their own boats, you know, create their own organizations around a church or a school, even though they were not, you know, functionally literate. It says that they weren't stupid. These were people who understood the world. And even though... You know, some of the chattering classes would say, "Oh, you know, they were gullible." Well, you know, we we think we got to temper those arguments.
0: Yeah, I completely agree, and, and it really speaks to the this whole thing of it, you don't. You, you, everyone wants to be the smartest person in the room, and when it seems like the the natural thing that people want to do is when somebody disagrees with them is to try to tell them why they're wrong like and and just sort of browbeat them in a sense. But what is much more effective is to listen and to see where they're coming from, understand their concerns, and and that just leads to much more positive dialogue and it actually allows us, in in a perfect world, to come to solutions that work for everybody And, and it's not us in in like I live in a city, it's not sort of me who lives in the city against somebody who lives in a rural setting. We're all we're all on the same team. We're all right, we should all be pulling the rope in the same direction. And this talking at each other doesn't really seem to work and and it should be a situation where we're talking with each other much more than we are.
1: Yeah no I, I don't think I could say it better myself, Sean. That you know one of the things that if you look at people who lived in rural Newfoundland and the lack of hospital care. And, Uh you know, if you go and you look at the number of headstones for babies in any outport community, and then all of a sudden the person comes along like Smallwood and says, you know, we need to make sure that everyone has access to health care, that everyone has access to education, everyone has good teachers, and then all of a sudden, you say, yeah, you know, that matters. And, yeah. and so to denigrate their engagement with that narrative and say they were bribed because the federal government would pay them $8 a month in baby bonus and that the people were just, you know, uh, I guess, uh, materialistic and wanted of the eight bucks is, is to ignore – their worldview and to ignore uh, their goals and their hopes for their families.
0: Uh, so, yeah, and this is, again, why people should to go get the book, because it's not just about Newfoundland in, in the 1860s through the 1940s. It has a lot of contemporary appeal. And, again, the title of the book is Where Once They Stood, Newfoundland's Rocky Road Towards Confederation. Uh, Raymond Blake, I already took more time of yours than I said I would. So um, we encourage everybody to go get the book uh, from our friends uh, Raymond Blake and Melvin Baker, published by our friends out there at the University of Regina Press. Thanks to uh, Melissa Sherman as well for helping set this up. So Raymond Blake, thank you very much for the time. Thank you,
1: uh, Sean. It's been wonderful and best of luck with everything.
0: All right, thank you very much. Uh, if you have any questions or comments for the show, please find us at historyslam at gmail.com. Subscribe on Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is you get your show, give us the likes, ratings, helps other people find the show, keep us going. And definitely check out activehistory.ca as well, where in addition to the podcast, you will also be able to find, I'm going to link to the post or the article that Raymond Blake wrote for the Globe and Mail that came out at the end of March that further explains some of what happened in Newfoundland. So be sure to check that out and all the other content Over there. So we'll be back in a couple weeks with a new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to
1: subscribe on iTunes.